0: The lesson this morning is taken from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boasts in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we
1: come to the Lord's word together. As it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Father, that is our prayer this morning, that as you speak to us through your ancient yet ever contemporary word, that Christ would be our boast, would be our cornerstone, would be the one on whom we rest and rely, in whom we seek life in all its fullness. May his greater glory be our goal, for his sake, amen. Well, we live in a society that um, loves to, uh, to categorize, of course, it loves to rank people, And uh, one thinks of the advertisers, you know, they have that sort of scheme, don't they, where they classify people, you know, either A's or B's or C's, depending on, you know, your background, your uh, university education, your influence, your income, whatever it might be. And the categories of the world, uh, and the categories that the world uses, speaks volumes, of course, about what it is the world values. Uh, It's... Symbols of status, the things that it thinks establish you in life, the things in which it puts its confidence for life. And as we saw last time, the cross is always a scandal. The cross is always a scandal to such, to such societies because it confronts worldly symbols of status, it confronts worldly ambitions. It confronts self confidence and our worldly systems of hope, rooted as they are in an inflated view of self. But it does that in order to replace them with something better. It does that in order to replace that fragile, false confidence and hope and life that the world offers with something altogether more substantial. That is, the true status, hope, significance, salvation in a word, that Christ and his kingdom offers. But one of the problems that Paul is addressing in Corinthians is that the Corinthian church is still enthralled to the values of the world. Uh, The world out of which it was converted and which surrounds it. And it's damaging them. It's damaging them spiritually, and that's playing out in all sorts of social divisions and problems. And Paul has confronted them by holding up the cross as the antithesis of worldly values. And now what he does in verses 26 to 31 is he carries on that theme. Having held up the cross, he now holds up a mirror. You see that as uh, Robert read to us? And he shows them how they themselves reflect God's subversive wisdom and values. And really, I think he makes one point, essentially, in these verses. I have one point for us anyway this morning. And it's this, that the subversive wisdom of God is seen in the Christian community that he's calling. The subversive wisdom of God is seen in the Christian community that he is calling. And Paul says this, look, if you want to see how God's wisdom, if you want to see how God's kingdom differs from and confronts the kingdoms of this age, look at the cross and then look at yourselves. To a world where one's value is determined by one's education or one's wealth or one's influence or one's background, and to a church in which those values are still clinging on and are being used to sort of rank one another spiritually, well, God displays his countercultural wisdom and confronts such values by choosing for his own the marginalized and the overlooked and the ignored by the world. That's his point, isn't it, in verses 26 to 28? Brothers, he says, brothers, sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak Of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He's saying, Look, why are you still enthralled to the symbols of status and the hope systems of the world? Think of what you were when God called you. Not many of you were academics, not many of you were influential, not many were aristocracy. But God chose the foolish and the weak and the lowly. Now, we need to say immediately, he didn't choose them exclusively. It says, uh, not many, not, not any. I was reading as I was uh, prepping this week, um, Selina Hastings was a countess of Huntington back in the 1700s, Uh, I think very influenced by George Whitfield's uh, ministry, great evangelist at that time. And apparently in her journal, somewhere in her journal, she has this line, which I thought was super. She says this, "'Blessed be God, it does not say not any, it says not many, I owe my salvation to the letter M.'" which is a lovely point, isn't it? So, yes, there will be some academics, there will be some aristocracy, there will be some uh, celebrities and whatever it might be. Great, we praise God for them. But the point is, it's not exclusively the lowly, the, 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 the foolish, but purposefully. That's the point, purposefully. you see. And when we ask the question, what is God's purpose in choosing the weak and the lowly and the foolish? The answer comes back to us in verse 27, 28, God acts in this way to shame the wise and the strong and to nullify the things that are, by which he means, I think, not so much that he acts in this way to make the wise and the the highborn and the influential ashamed. There might be a sense of that, but I think it is more the sense that he acts in this way in order to confront and overturn worldly wisdom and values. What, what, what we think is actually important. And to replace them with something better, true wisdom, true security, true hope, salvation in Christ and his kingdom. I don't know if you can remember um, the ritual back at school of picking teams. You know, the, de- the best two players would be pulled out and they'd be captains and you'd all stand in a line. If you're anything like me, it takes you back to a bad place. And... Uh, you know, you have that standing in that line, you have that uh, sense of dread, uh, which is slowly replaced with a sense of inadequacy as others are picked. And, you know, I found myself usually towards the, the bottom of the list. And that is because in that game, in that ritual, the biggest and the best are chosen first, the fittest and the fastest, the brightest and the best. Those were chosen first, and then, you know, it worked its way all the way down to, you know, who was going to have, um, you know, Paul uh, in their team. And the reason for that. Uh, no, don't feel too bad for me. The reason for that is that, of course, the point is that the endeavor depends on the quality of the participants for its success. You know, If you're, going to, if you're about to play a game of football, of course you're going to pick the fittest and the fastest because you're more likely to win the game of football. If you're, if you're going to enter a quiz, of course you're going to pick the brainiest. You're more likely to enter the quiz. The world, of course, works that way. As you get older, the world still works that way, still thinks that way, still picks the best, still puts its confidence in uh, the brightest and and the influential and the celebrities and the beautiful. It longs to be itself in those categories because that's how you make it in this world. That's how you win the game of life. That's where life is to be found, says our world. Paul's point is this, isn't it? God doesn't pick people that way doesn't play that game. He's not impressed by what impresses the world because he knows that this kingdom is a rebel one and its values are warped and that the life it offers to the winners is false and fragile. The cross stands opposed to this kingdom. It points instead to a God who has come down to establish an altogether different Kingdom, his kingdom, with a very different set of values that offers a a very different kind of life, a new and a better life in Christ that is gained in a very different way to the ways of the world. The point is this that God's great work of salvation does not depend on the quality of the participants, thank God. In fact, quite the reverse. Because we're the problem, not the solution. God doesn't come down from heaven sort of looking for support, as it were. He comes offering salvation. He comes offering radical rescue. He's not some spiritual coach who's come down just to sort of tweak us a bit. He's come down to radically save and to transform, to solve our fundamental problems, which are issues of the heart, about which we have no power to save. You see it's not it's not that God is overturning the wisdom and the values of the world just for the fun of it. It's that he's doing that because the values and the wisdom of the world actually gets in the way of God's salvation. Because God's kingdom is not established and it's not entered by our greatness. It's established and it's entered by a gracious act of God in Christ. And friends, this is profoundly good news. It's profoundly good news. For a start, it means that the God of the Bible is a God for everyone. Uh, you know, we, we don't come to know God through our own strength, but through the self-sacrifice of Christ. We don't come to know God through our social status. We don't come to know him through our religious CV, but through his crucified son. And that means that he is a God for the poor as well as for the rich. He's a God for the illiterate as well as for the don. He's a God for the immoral as well as for the moral, for the shamed as well as the honored. He is a God for all because it does not depend on us but on his grace and of course the challenge here is that indeed our very pretensions of greatness can be a barrier to receiving this gift of salvation far from actually being a help it can be a hindrance, can't it? you know Those things that the world values, influence, and celebrity, and brains, and beauty, and all these sorts of things, can bring us a status and a life in this world that though false and fragile and fading away is actually very attractive and powerful, plays well to our self-centered natures, and it can so often close the hearts and minds to the offer of life in christ who alone offers the forgiveness and the life that we need i think of the apostle paul generally writes to the philippians where he he lists all those sort of great social advantages he has you know being circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of benjamin you know just wonderfully well brought up and all these and he says i now consider them what he says i consider them rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing christ They had no benefit in helping him come to know the Lord. In fact, they could have been a hindrance if he'd put his hope in them. It's all of grace. God chooses the weak and the foolish and the lowly to pierce the pretensions of humanity, to point away from the things the world values as the way to life, and instead to point to the grace of God as the only means by which we might have God's Eternal life. And Paul is saying, isn't he, to the Corinthian church and to us, why do we laud these values when they're of no value in obtaining God's kingdom and indeed so easily stop people from entering God's kingdom? And it's worth pausing at that point and asking ourselves, are we still in thrall to the world's values? It's interesting, isn't it? I, I was thinking as I was preparing this, you know, why do we so often parade Christian converts who are celebrities, or athletes, or academics? Now, don't, don't mishear me. We rejoice when folks such as that become Christians. We, re- we rejoice when anyone becomes a Christian. But why do we so often parade those types of converts? You know, are we more, in our heart of hearts, you know, are we more delighted when somebody like that becomes a Christian than when you know, Joe Bloggs or whatever becomes a Christian. Is it because we somehow feel more encouraged by their conversion? You know, more sort of justified. Oh, you know, Christianity might be right because you know, Professor So-and-So has become a Christian or, you know, this gold medal winner has become a Christian. Why, why do we think like that? Is it because in our heart of hearts we still value what the world values? still rank people as the world ranks them, still considers what the world considers impressive, impressive. Do we still play the world's game? God chooses the foolish and the weak and the lowly, verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. You see, God has acted in the cross and in his calling of a people to confront worldly self-importance so that we will make, when it comes to salvation, little of ourselves and much of Christ. That's the point. Little of ourselves, much of Christ. There is nothing in us that marks us out as more worthy of God, as more attractive to God than anyone else. That is the point that God is reinforcing by choosing the foolish and the weak and the lowly. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And the moment we start boasting in ourselves, you see, the moment we start relying on ourselves, depending on ourselves, <laughs> rooting our confidence in ourselves, is the moment we either, well, we go one of two ways. On a good day, we, 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 we boast in ourselves. We go, we go down the route of pride. And on a bad day, we go down the road of Despair. And both of those make little of Christ, don't they? Because if we get down the road of pride and look to ourselves and, uh, and root our confidence in ourselves, we're saying to Christ, actually, I don't need you as Savior. In this area of my life, or whatever, it might, I can save myself. I can find life for myself. If we go down the road of despair, well, again, we're making little of Christ because, again, we're saying, I'm ignoring you as Savior. I can't be saved. What I've done is too great for your blood to cover. Well, no. That makes little of Christ. He can save all graciously. We don't look to ourselves. We make much of Christ. Verse 30. It is, says Paul, because of him, God. Not, not our brains or our influence or our wealth or our breeding. Or It is because of him... That we are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, holiness, redemption. Do you see? God leads us to Christ, who is wisdom, but not from within, but from without. Wisdom from above, who grants as a gift what we could never earn as a right. God's kingdom life. And where the world lords wisdom and influence and background and pursues these things in order to establish itself in the kingdom of this age, God's wisdom comes to us as a gift from above and establishes us in his kingdom. Somebody I was reading... uh, wonders whether, and I think there might be some truth in this, you can link the things that God gives us in verse 30 with the things in verse 27 that the world chases after. So, you know, worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. Um, Worldly influence versus righteousness that God grants. Righteousness being in the right with God, uh, being in the right status with him. Uh, You know, being... um, being lowly and excluded versus the sanctification that God grants. Sanctification, that is to say, by faith in Christ, being in God's presence. So you move from being lowly to being in God's presence. Low-born might indeed fit with the redemption that God gives us in Christ. We might be low-born in the world, but God gives us redemption into his noble family, makes us sons and daughters of the living God. The point is that the kingdom that God grants us as a gift, graciously in Christ, is superior to that which the world chases after. Therefore, verse 31, as it is written, Jeremiah, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. See, it's the Lord who establishes us in his kingdom through faith in his Son by grace. Doesn't depend on us, so we may not boast, but on him, so that we may boast in him. Boasting, I think, boasting in the Lord is more than giving him honor and glory and value and esteem. It is that. We do do that. Of course we do that. It is that, but it's more than that, I think. It is also, boasting is, is about actually where you get those things from. It's about what, what, what you boast in is what you lean on for, esteem and value and significance. It's about what you build your identity on. Let him who boasts, in other words, let him who's looking to build their identity, build it on the Lord. As we close, they're challenging verses, aren't they, perhaps? Particularly to us in Oxford. Surrounded, as we are, by those who make much of education and influence and money and power as the place where we find life and significance and worth, the things that truly establish us. That's the sea we swim in. It's the sea we were saved from. And that is the water, if you like, that still clings to us. And these verses beg the question, what or who are we making much of? God's design in salvation is that we would make much of Christ, that is the road to being established in his kingdom. His glory is our goal. What does that look like? Well, it looks like no pride in success. Many of us here uh, will be, uh, or might be successful in the world's eyes. Uh, we take no pride in that. That is good, but we take no pride in that. We don't despise it, but we thank God for it because it's from him and of him. We respond to it with thankfulness, knowing that God has put us in whatever position of influence we might have to serve him and others. We are quick to turn any plaudits we might receive into praise to the Heavenly Father and to seek to further his cause. We won't take pride in our success, neither will we despair in our failures. Making much of Christ means coming to him quickly as Savior, confession, and grace. And neither will we place much confidence in our external circumstances. You know, making much of Christ means knowing that he is more than enough in any and everything, that he is our delight, that he is our source of identity, that he is our source of life, that he is greater than any of the markers the world uses It means not making too much of our grades or our career or our reputation. Not resting on them, not building a life on them, not leaning on them. But rather looking to Christ as the source of our value and our identity and our hope and our life. We make much of him. I close with those words, in fact, from Jeremiah that Paul quotes. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Ultimately, life is not about my resume. It's not about my reputation or my riches. It's about Christ. And we are to make much of him For he is the true source of life, and life is found in knowing him and trusting him, knowing that in all things he is more than enough, knowing that our search for self-satisfaction and self-promotion before God is a fool's errand, and turning instead to the one in whom we discover all the blessings of God, gift-wrapped and graciously offered. Let's pray. Let him who boasts, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you you have seen fit to have them written down and passed down to us for our good. And we pray you'd work through them by your Spirit to minister to us as we have need. May Christ be our boast, Regardless of our background, our situation in life, regardless of what the world thinks of us, may we cherish more what you think of us. May we know that our life and our significance is found in Christ, that he is the source. May we lean on him, rest in him, make much of him so that he is glorified above all.